already October. I can't believe it. It's uh, October. Thanksgiving will be here soon. Football, family, and awkward conversations. I'm sure you've heard that during the holidays, like Thanksgiving or Christmas, you're not supposed to talk about certain things because it makes the dining room table just a bit too awkward. You're allegedly not supposed to talk about things like money or politics, romantic relationships, or religion. But whoever came up with that rule apparently didn't consult Jesus Because in our passage today, Jesus is going to talk about some of those very awkward conversations. So I want you to open your Bible up to Mark chapter 12, as we take a look in our passage today, that Jesus will address some of the most awkward or controversial topics of his day. He's going to be asked about, and he will answer questions about money or taxes, about marriage, which is really a question about the resurrection, and about the greatest commandment, or money, politics, religion, and the like. So again, open your Bible up to Mark chapter 12. As you're turning there, I want you to remember what we've been seeing. We've been seeing now for a few weeks that Jesus is in his final week. This is in the Passion Week of Jesus' life and ministry, and this time has been filled with controversy. Jesus has upset some of the most humanly powerful people in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, and because of that, they are on a mission now to destroy him. And in our passage today, they're going to ask Jesus three controversial questions in an effort to try to trap Jesus in his words and find reason to bring him down. We're going to see those three awkward questions. Three points there on your outline, this question and answer session. Jesus first, number one on your outline, has a question and answer session with the Pharisees. That's Mark 12, 13 through 17. Then number two, he'll have a question and answer session with the Sadducees. That's Mark 12, 18 through 27. And then finally, number three on your outline, he's going to have a question and answer session with a scribe, Mark chapter 12. Verses 28 through 34. Let's take a look first at number one on your outline, this question and answer session with the Pharisees. Mark chapter 12, let's take a look first at verses 13 through 15. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. says, then they, it's probably the Sanhedrin, then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, teacher, We know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Let's pause right here. So here we see this first Q&A session that Jesus has here with the Pharisees. Notice verse 13 says, they, again, most likely the Sanhedrin, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him. Now, as a bit of background, the Pharisees were strict observers of the Mosaic law and their traditions. They were a very religious crowd. 
The Herodians, though, the other group mentioned here in verse 13, they were a group of Jews who sympathized with the Herodian dynasty and thus with the Romans. So you have the Pharisees and the Herodians both coming together in order to trap Jesus in a statement. These two groups of people couldn't have been more different except for their common hatred of Jesus and their efforts to bring him down. Notice again, John Mark tells us that they came trying to trap him there in verse 13. They come trying to trap Jesus. That word for trap is used elsewhere to describe the catching of a wild animal in a trap. They're trying to trap Jesus, to catch him. And yet notice as well, in verse 14, they come to him with very flattering words. Which is actually quite common when people are trying to trap you. Notice their flattery they pay to Jesus there in verse 14. We know that you're truthful. We know that you defer to no one. And you're not partial to any. Literally, you don't see the face of men, which is a Hebrew idiom, meaning he doesn't regard the more important or so-called more important more than the lowly, the humble. But again, notice their flattery. And yet notice, ironically, the words they say trying to flatter Jesus are actually true. He actually is this kind of person. And as such, he's unlikely to be influenced by their flattery. But notice the nature of their question there. Once they get through their flattery, they ask Jesus, and here's the controversial question. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Verse 15, shall we pay or shall we not pay? Shall we pay taxes to Caesar or not? The word for taxes here is a, a Latin loan word meaning census. And in this day, this census tax refers to the poll tax or head tax that was demanded by the Romans on all Jews. This is a very controversial topic because, again, you have these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees objected to the tax, and they were concerned about what this tax might mean on religious grounds. On the other hand, you have the Herodians who supported the tax. And they were concerned about what this tax means and not paying this tax what it would mean on political grounds. So here we see a, a debate over the dialogue, the difference between faith and politics. They're trying to trap Jesus in his words, and a, a yes answer to pay the tax would antagonize the people, but a no answer to this question would invite retaliation from Rome. It's this debate between faith and politics. It's like asking your pastor who you should vote for in the next election. It's a trick question. Don't ask me. 
They're trying to trap Jesus. Notice again, verse 15, shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So here Jesus asks for a denarius, the very coin that was acceptable for these particular tax payments. And most likely the particular coin, the particular denarius that Jesus is referencing here had the image, the likeness of Tiberius Caesar. And on this coin, you can see him today, on this coin, this particular coin had an inscription on one side that read, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side of the coin had an inscription that read, God and high priest. And so naturally with titles like this, there on this coin, this would have been highly repulsive to the Jews. You can see why this was such a controversial thing. These coins were really meant to promote and encourage the worship of the emperor. So they bring Jesus the coin. He, take notes. he takes note of the fact that Caesar's likeness and inscription is on it. And then notice verse 17. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. I love Jesus' reply to this controversial question. Shall we pay the poll tax or not? Jesus says, well, well, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's his coin. It's his likeness. Give it back to him. But then notice what he says. But render to God the things that are God's. Human beings were created in the image, in the likeness of God. People are God's coinage, if you will, because we bear his image. And as such, People owe to him what belongs to him, and that is our very life. Jesus says, sure, give Caesar his coins, but give God your life. And with this amazing answer, notice again there, the end of verse 17, they, the Pharisees and the Herodians, are amazed at him. This is the first Q&A session that Jesus has. Now let's take a look at the second, number two, on your outline. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Let's look first at verse 18. John Mark tells us that some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him. So having dealt with the Pharisees and the Herodians, now we have a second Q&A session, this time with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the Jewish aristocracy. They were really the bigwigs from the priesthood and from the upper classes. 
The Sadducees occupied influential positions there in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. And John Mark fills us in on a bit of background there in parentheses of verse 18. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection. They also claim that there's no future judgment, there's no angels. You should know that they accepted as authoritative only the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They rejected the rest of the Old Testament. They rejected all the oral traditions of the Pharisees. And it's this background we need to understand as we look at the question that the Sadducees come to Jesus with. Notice again, verses 18 and 19. Some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. So the Sadducees come to Jesus with a question. And they cite here from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25, a passage about what's called Leverite marriage. It's kind of a, an odd passage in the book of Deuteronomy and it really describes this case in which if a man died and he and his wife had not produced any children, then the man's brother was to marry the woman, the widow, in order to make sure that the family line continues, to make sure that the family line was preserved. This was to prevent the extinction of a family line, a family name from occurring. And so the Sadducees come to Jesus and they want to know about this passage here in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 25, but here's something vitally important for you to understand. They raise this question about marriage, but their question actually isn't about marriage. Instead, they ask this question about marriage to challenge the doctrine of the resurrection, which John Mark tells us they don't believe in. Notice what I mean in verses 20 through 23. They continue with their question. Notice verse 20. They say, well, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. And here's their question. In the resurrection, when they rise again, even though they don't believe in the resurrection, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. So notice now the Sadducees ask Jesus a question about this particular woman in the resurrection. Well, wait a minute, I thought they didn't believe in the resurrection. Exactly. What the Sadducees are doing here is what is in logic called reductio ad absurdum. They're trying to take an idea and reduce it to absurdity to try to prove the invalidity of this position, the ridiculous nature of this position. 
So they're posing this question about marriage, but it's not really about marriage. They're posing this question to challenge the doctrine of the resurrection. And so notice Jesus' reply, verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. This is a bold reply that Jesus has to the Sadducees, people who should have known the scriptures and the power of God. Jesus here, in reply to their challenge and to their question about the resurrection, uses a two-pronged counter-question. Number one, you don't know the scriptures. And number two, you don't know the power of God. And then starting in verse 25, he first mentions the fact that they don't know the power of God. Notice verse 25, he says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Notice Jesus says, when they rise from the dead. He affirms to the Sadducees the fact of the resurrection. He says, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And I think we should read this in the context of first century marriages that were often arranged marriages. He says, they will neither marry, which is the groom's side of the marriage, nor given in marriage, which is the bride's side of the marriage arrangement. He says, but rather, they are like angels in heaven. So what in the world does this mean? This is a a unique passage. It's a fascinating passage. What is Jesus talking about here? Let me first address what I don't think Jesus is saying here. Some, I think, have taken this too far and have concluded that people will will become angels at death. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He says they will become like angels in heaven. Other people, likewise, I think, have taken this too far and have tried to argue that in heaven we won't recognize or remember our earthly relationships. Again, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think what Jesus is affirming here is that like angels, we will not reproduce in marriage or in heaven. In marriage. I hope you do in marriage. Um, In heaven we won't reproduce. Because there will be no death, there will be no need to reproduce. Remember the question that the Sadducees first ask is about this Leverite marriage background. Of who is to continue the family line. Jesus, in effect, is here saying it's not needed. By the way, this disproves, disproves Mormon theology which teaches that Mormons will eternally reproduce forever and ever and ever, repopulating new galaxies. But Jesus says no. Another thing that's unique here in what I think Jesus is saying is that there will be a shift in our marriage relationship. But exactly what that looks like, we simply don't know. One scholar, R.T. France, says perhaps heavenly relationships are not something less than marriage, but something more. 
In other words, our relationships in heaven will be so great and so perfect that even a marital relationship on earth pales in comparison to what all of our heavenly relationships will be like. But first, Jesus addresses the fact that the Sadducees don't understand the power of God. Then he addresses the fact that they don't understand the scripture either. Notice verse 26. He says, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, again, he affirms the resurrection. Regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Again, a couple things I want you to notice here. First, verse 26, Jesus affirms the reality of the resurrection. The dead will rise again. The second thing I want you to notice is that because the Sadducees only regarded the first five books, the books of Moses as authoritative, he here quotes from the books of Moses. He quotes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, the encounter Moses has with God in the burning bush. There in Exodus chapter 3, God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Here Jesus is highlighting the tense of a particular verb. It's present tense, not past tense. If there was no resurrection, if you just die and that's all there is, then God would have said, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. But that's not what he says. The present tense that Jesus is highlighting here demonstrates that God is the God of the dead, not uh, the dead, not just of the living. So again, what I want you to see here is that this question, the second question we see here from the Sadducees really isn't a question about marriage, but rather it's a challenge to the doctrine of the resurrection. Jesus clearly affirms the doctrine of the resurrection. Theologically, the, the resurrection, the future resurrection will be one of God's most amazing works and miracles of all time. There is a coming day when God is going to resurrect the dead. And for the righteous, he will bring an eternal end to sin and division and even death. And at that time, our relationships with God and with one another will be transformed in such a way that even our best earthly relationships today will pale in comparison for what is to come. So let me ask you, do you believe that you're going to live forever with God in perfect unity with God and in perfect unity with other Christians? If you're not sure how to answer that question, I want to pause and I want to invite you to consider who Jesus is. He is the God, not just of the dead, but of the living. He's the eternal God who laid down his life so that you and I can be forgiven, so that we can live forever in perfect harmony with our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and live forever with our fellow believers. If you've not trusted in Jesus here in this room or 
those of you watching online, I want to give you the opportunity to put your faith in him. But this is the second Q&A session that Jesus has. Now let's take a look at the third, number three on your outline here. Jesus has a Q&A session with a scribe. Mark chapter 12, let's look first at verse 28. John Mark tells us, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing. And recognizing that he, Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? This was another question that the religious leaders often asked and debated back and forth, which is the greatest commandment. Here Jesus is approached by a scribe asking this particular question. By the way, in the Gospel of Matthew, we learn that the scribe is not alone. He's with some Pharisees, and he himself is a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee who is a scribe. And he asks Jesus this question about what is the foremost or the greatest commandment. Well, let's take a look and see how Jesus replies. Notice verse 29. Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. When asked about the foremost commandment here, Jesus begins by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord alone. This is the, the basis of the Jewish faith. And Jesus affirms, you shall love the Lord, verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The Shema calls for a volitional and personal and wholehearted commitment to the Lord. Jesus here is conveying the full meaning of the Shema, to love the Lord your God with everything. You hold nothing back. And then he adds from Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says the foremost commandment is to love the Lord your God with all you are. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And there's no commandment greater than these. Jesus says there's no commandment greater than to these two. Because a wholehearted love for God and one's neighbor really is the sum and substance of the law and the prophets. And then I want you to notice the reply of the scribe. In the reply of the scribe, we see something that's very unique compared especially with the other interactions that Jesus has. Notice verses 32 and 33. The scribe said to him, right or correct, teacher. You have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
I want you to notice in the reply here of the scribe, he recognizes the accuracy of Jesus' answer. He says, right, teacher. Then he begins to repeat to Jesus, Jesus' answer to him. And he adds a bit of commentary, though. Notice he adds in there, there is no other but him. There is no one else besides him. From Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35. And then most interestingly there at the end of verse 33, he adds, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. There's a number of passages in the Old Testament, Hosea 6, 6 and 1 Samuel chapter 15, that affirm this idea that more than burnt offerings and sacrifices, God desires mercy. This is very similar to what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 9. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. There's something here in the reply of the scribe back to Jesus that indicates that he's beginning to understand. He's beginning to see. Notice Verse 34, Jesus replied back to him when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently. Jesus discerned something in the reply of the scribe back to him. Jesus saw that he answered intelligently and Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He's not there yet. But he's not as far off as his fellow Pharisees and the scribes. The scribe apparently is close to understanding the heart of God. He seems to be on the brink of coming to an understanding of who Jesus is. Sadly, we don't know what happened with this particular scribe. We don't know the end of the story. What we do know is what we read there at the end of verse 34. After that... No one would venture to ask Jesus any more questions. In summary, as we begin to move to application and put these three Q&A sessions together, what I want you to see is that, first, we bear God's image. Second, one day we will do that perfectly. And third, number three, as we await that day at the resurrection, we're called to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Here in this Q&A session that Jesus has with the religious leaders, you really see another demonstration of Jesus' authority, specifically in his teaching. He's asked these controversial questions about taxes and about the resurrection and about the greatest commandment. And in Jesus' answers, there are some important lessons for you and for I. In the coin story, we see Jesus demonstrate his authority and God's authority over the ones who bear his image. In the resurrection controversy, we see Jesus demonstrating God's authority extending even into eternity. Number three, in the greatest commandment discussion, we see that God's authority demands a wholehearted love from us to him 
as well as to love our neighbor as ourself. Again, as we summarize number one on your outline, the Q&A session from the Pharisees, what I want you to see is just like a coin bears the image of the one on it, you were created to bear the image of God. God created you and me so that when people look at us, they see him. Sadly, our sin has marred that image. But as believers, as those who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, our divine calling is to reflect God's image and not our own. As we summarize number two on your outline, what I want you to see is that based on the perfect and precise promises in the Word of God, even hinging on the tense of a verb, One day in the resurrection, you and I will experience a transformation that no words can adequately describe. The relationships we experience then with one another and with the Lord will be so pure and perfect that no earthly relationship today can even compare. And we should long for that day. But number three on your outline, as we long for that day, we should strive to live our lives even now as though we believe that that resurrection will actually happen. As we await the resurrection, we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. And these are the lessons we learned from Jesus there in these Q&A sessions. And there on the back side of your outline, I've given you your one thing for this week. And I want you to consider this, that God has... Supreme authority over his image bearers, you and me. That's number one on your outline. In eternity, that's number two on your outline. And even today, number three on your outline. So how is Jesus calling you to bear his image as you love God and as you love others? Every time I read this passage, I'm reminded of my grandfather, Especially this idea of us bearing God's image and the coinage idea here. I'm reminded of my grandfather. My grandfather, before he died and went to be with the Lord, he used to carry around in his pocket silver coins. And he had carried them around for so long that they had rubbed against one another for so long that they had become perfectly smoothed out. You couldn't even tell what these silver coins once were. They had been worn out by the wandering around in his pocket. And St. Augustine once said, we are God's money, a coin, but we have wandered away from the treasury. And what has been stamped upon us, the image of God, has been worn off by our wandering. It's the bad news. But the good news is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that image of God is restored That image of God can be restored partially now and perfectly in eternity. And as we await that day, let's follow Jesus and his words here to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourself, as the image bearers we were created to be. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you as we're reminded here this morning that perfection of your word. That 
Here Jesus even uses an argument based on the tense of a particular verb. Thank you, Father, that you created us in your image. You created us to bear your image as we go about our lives in this world. Father, give us the hope of the future resurrection, the day when Jesus will come and make all things new, when he will rule with perfection and mercy and justice. And Father, as we await that day, we ask that by the power of your Spirit within us, you would enable us to love you, Father, Son, and Spirit, with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves as we bear your image in this fallen world around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.